You are listening to Story Bones, your one-stop shop for literary and screenwriting advice, with your hosts, James and Chip. Thank you for tuning into Story Bones. I'm James Nolan. I am, among other things, the host of the Story Bones podcast. This is episode three, and today's topic is scenes. Today, Chip and I talk about opposition in scenes, creating suspense and tension through differing goals in scenes, creating turns, moving plot forward through scenes, as well as the differences between a scene in a novel or a short story and a scene in a script. We also talk about how some scenes get bogged down with various extraneous strategies, from purple prose to excessive dialogue. Before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to my very own production house, Silverhammer Studios. That's silverhammer.studio. Silverhammer produces horror, thriller, science fiction, and post-apocalyptic novels, short stories, and audiobooks. And now, with the creation of my new short film, Lilith, which is coming soon, movies. Looking for your next favorite book? Check out what we have to offer at Silverhammer Studios. That's S-I-L-V-E-R-H-A-M-M-E-R dot studio. And now on with the show. Welcome to the Story Bones podcast, episode three, where we're, uh, no, welcome to the Story Bones podcast, a veritable plethora of literary advice about crafting story and writing. Today, James Knoll, host, and me, Chip, co-host, will be talking about, what? Uh, you're a, you're a no, host. No, no, no. You're a host. This is your gig. We're going to be talking about scenes. Scenes and sequences. I was thinking about this when you were blowing me off and I was thinking about it again. And there is actually, among the 9 billion things that I've learned from you this past year, is the how different scenes are between what I try to do with short story and novel writing and what you're able to do with, with screenwriting. It is, and people say this all the time, so this isn't new, but it is worlds. There's so mm-hmm. worlds apart. It's yeah. so different. And so like we did last time, I just wanted to start with, with your take on it because I was thinking about it last night. I was reading a book and I was just like, huh, this is good. I'm not going to bring up any examples, but this is a good way of, of kind of couching what mm-hmm. the difference is between the two. I mean, I think that scenes in different, you know, in screenwriting and in fiction or prose, they just, they're, they're the same in that, in, in the end user experience to a certain degree, you know, they're a segment of the story that propels the narrative forward, but the mechanics that go into them are, I think, entirely different. Many of the components are the same, you know, each one's a mini story unto itself or a mini struggle for something and, and whatnot, but it's well, they can, they can they be, can be wildly but, different as well. You know, you only have because you only have dialogue and visuals in a screenplay and in a visual scene. So it either boils down to a physical struggle or two two or more characters with different objectives in the scene, and that is reflected in their dialogue without them saying what their objectives are. So it's just different, you know, you can go in and really feel out a scene and 
characters' mental states and the memories that pop into their mind and the things that inform their decisions in the moment, you can explore that in prose, but you can't in screenwriting. Let, let's talk about that that hugely important detail of what you were just talking about, where you have to show everything in screenwriting. It's a great rule in fiction. You know, it's one of the reasons that I assign my students the screenwriting unit every year is because you can't fall back on expository mm-hmm. information. It forces them to show, and they are they mm-hmm. they struggle with it a lot. I was reading story, and it was talking about how you have these two characters and their objectives and, you know, every scene has to have a purpose. And I was, it was one of those things that I kind of threw away because I was like, not necessarily in, in fiction, mm-hmm. you don't have to do that that much. And I wasn't looking for that information. That's the thing I want you to, to focus on is that oppositional nature of scene in screenwriting. Well, every scene is somehow related to your protagonist you could find examples of interwoven stories like Pulp Fiction where you have different tracks of, there's multiple protagonists almost, but you know, those are a rarity. So if you're thinking in very simple terms, if I was working with a, an emerging writer or a developing writer, I wouldn't say try to write a very complex story like that to get you to build your chops. So in that regard, scenes are just, it's, Every, it, they're the, just the little building blocks that advance your protagonist's experience. Even if they're not in the scene, it's the building of a B story that is affecting them. So every scene builds on the previous scene somehow, some way. And there's a, a minor struggle and a minor objective and a minor resolution. So if they're just if sitting in a two people sitting in a cafe talking about life and the dialogue is really good, it's still a flat scene. You could write the best dialogue in the world, but the two people sitting there have to have different needs. Your protagonist is sitting there having this mm-hmm. great conversation with, I don't know, a person who's actually a double agent or a person that they really want to go to prom with or whatever. And their objective is to get information out of them without blowing their cover or to woo this person around so that they could lay the big question, will you go to the prom with me? You know, and the good scenes, the, the, the secondary character also has an objective. Well, they're there just to maintain the lie that they're interested in nerds or they're there, you know, because (laughs) they gently want to get this guy off their back or they're there because, occasionally I I want him to ask me to prom, but he doesn't even know I exist. So they could have the same aim, but becoming. Right. And so when you're, when you're breaking down a scene or especially a scene that's not working, it's like, what is the, what is the disposition that your character is bringing into this scene? And is every one of their actions and every one of their lines of dialogue reflective of someone who desperately wants this individual to go to prom with them, but is terrified of expressing their affection, you know? And right. There were two things that I picked up on in there and it's, it's, it's plotting intention, plotting intention. You're using scenes to build the plot, to, to go through that structure, the three act structure, the five act structure, the seven act structure, the reverse triple Lindy, whatever it is you're talking about. 
but then what you're saying right there is it's it is about conflict. It's about conflict and tension and making sure the audience yeah. feels it. I mean, yes, anticipation. You you definitely want your audience anticipating what's going to happen in this scene. Like I'm thinking about this scene in Lovecraft Country. I think it's in the pilot when they're traveling around and they go into this little diner and one of the guy travels a lot. He's used to dealing with the difficulties, African-American guy that come with it. And he and his, yeah, he and his two travel companions sit down in this diner in a Southern town. And it's just like, it's laden with potential conflict. You know, something's going to happen. And so one of the characters just wants to have lunch. Another one wants to keep moving and and not be harassed by these um, vicious racists and knows that they're in jeopardy. So they, you know, different objectives, but you, you just, the anticipation, it's like, you know, something's going to happen, but can I just interrupt here? That that's that's the one where they figure out because the um is it the tile that's yeah. burned or there's a, a, a smudge in the wall and they figured out it was yeah. the place that had been burned. Yeah. Out. So, so yeah. So, in 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 that that's a good example because you have those three characters who are kind of main characters, the ones we're following, and then you have the people at the diner who are you know the the white racists, and so very clearly you have opposition there between those two sets. But then even with the three main characters, they all want something different in that scene, you know? And so (laughs) it's, you know, and, and if you go down and you break down the dialogue, all of that stuff is, it's like the scene comes to a head when they finally say, you know, we got to get the hell out of here or we're fricking screwed, (laughs) you know? So And that's the thing. It's like people come in with objectives. And the other thing that kills a scene is, you know, when everything's on the nose and in the text and nothing in the subtext, it's like people don't talk that way. You know, people don't sit down and say exactly what they feel. Hey, we are sitting down in this, in this racist diner. I just want to eat a hamburger. I'm worried about my wife. In spite of the dangers inherent in this scene, we are going to try to have a meal like normal people. The way that the narrative moves forward the way that the plot advances is every scene. And this comes right out of Robert McKee talks about it pretty eloquently. I think he calls it turning a scene, but your, you know, your main character is going to leave a scene in an opposite or different state than when they came into the scene. So if, if those, if it's breaking the Seinfeld rule, in a way, what's what, that? Nothing happens. Well, yeah, nothing. Nothing happens, and nobody oh, yeah. learns anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a study unto itself. What what makes a Seinfeld scene? But but yeah, so in that in that scene where they come into the diner looking for food, if they come into the diner, don't experience any resistance, and they have the blue plate specials, and then they leave and don't discuss anything of significance it doesn't move the plot forward at all. You know, it's like they come into that scene hopeful that they're not going to run into trouble and that they can just live like normal people. And it's slingshots the plot and the narrative forward when they're run out of town, you know, being chased by a pickup truck full of shotgun wielding racists. And I think that points to how every scene is a little story unto itself. And that really helps 
when conceiving of scenes is in every little scene, there's some kind of objective and the, the, the character, primary characters are going to seek that objective and they're either going to get it or not. And so if, you know, if it's, your protagonist is walking through the desert and it's day 44 and barely had any water. Well, just a 10 minute scene of them walking up and down dunes is going to get real boring, but it's like, <laughs> it's the Conan and his, and his friend yeah. running across the desert. But when an oasis appears, it's like, suddenly you have a scene because there's the desire to get there and he's going to use his last bit of vital energy to reach it. And the big question, is it really an oasis or is it, or is it a mirage, you know? A mirage. So I, I feel like, and you mentioned Tarantino, obviously he's an amazing director, an amazing storyteller. And there are two examples of him doing, I think a fantastic job mm -hmm. with what you talked about. The building of suspense, uh, everybody's at odds and they're, and they're trying to get what they want. <clears throat> and an, an example of him not doing so well with that one, and I'm sure everybody has their own examples of it because Tarantino can be long-winded. But the one that I thought that, I, that I'm critical of is, is the Death Grindhouse proof? one. That was yeah, horrible. The scene with the... You didn't like it. Okay. I, I, you said that the scene felt flat or well, that a scene falls flat when... You have this great dialogue, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And, and that's what I, I felt about that when he was circling the table of the female stunt, mm -hmm. stunt women. It just, it just kept on going on and on. It, it did do eventually what it needed to do. You propel the story forward. And then you have the chase scene that he, you know, and he, he does that, 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 that push and pull often of creating that suspense and tension in those desires and wants mm -hmm. and playing off of people. Did it in Glorious Bastards too with Michael Fassbender that that was a very well very well written but I felt the one that I enjoyed the most was the recent one that's actually three mm. examples of Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yes the scene where Brad Pitt's character is high on acid and the fa yep. Manson family comes in yeah. and he just laughs yeah and, <laughs> and there's that huge scene that tense scene where the dog's hungry so there's one thing that wants something. Everybody, the audience, the you know, dramatic irony, the audience knows that all uh, mm -hmm. Cliff, I think his name is, has to do is make that sound and everybody's dead, yeah. <laughs> you know, pretty much. But in the moments leading up to that, he did, it, it didn't take yeah. too long. In other words, it wasn't flat. It was a great setup, first of all, but also it did service to the amount of time he took to get there which would be the next thing I wanted to talk about after we maybe talk about the fictional equivalent mm -hmm. of what we're talking about. Another comedic scene of Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character sitting in the pool, listening to the stereo and drinking when that woman comes out on yeah. face all mashed in. And then he goes and gets the, the flamethrower. <laughs> Holy shit. I was cracking up. And it's, <laughs> yeah, and it was just that, that the peevedness, the, 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 the mid-century middle-aged dad peeveness which was he stomps off to his garage yeah. to get his flamethrower yeah. <laughs> uh. there there was no set tension there that was pure comedy anyways when you and i were writing i ain't gonna work on lilith's farm farm no more another scene sticks out to me that you i'm not sure if i was able to read this yet i'm not sure if you've gotten to it yet i know you were in the middle of it no you did it was a scene between harlow mm -hmm. and mueller and you know i I, I, I want to talk about that scene 
as how I would have approached that in, or how I will approach that in the novel version that I'm going to write. And then maybe you could talk about what you got from me and what you needed to do to trim it up. Yeah, I should pull the scene up because there's a lot of little. So you have Mueller, who is one of our bad guys, and Harlow, who is gray area, chaotic, chaotic good, chaotic evil going and trying to get on board with what the bad guys are doing. And so from a novel's, novelist's point of view, you, you know, you're talking about a scene. I think ultimately you're going to get the same thing out of it. But what I would have to do is, you know, all the stuff that you're, or me too, is writing in the action line is what the director of photography and the director are going to have to contend with. But as the novelist, I've got to do that. And I've got to do it in a way that isn't too short that actually creates the lush atmosphere the tension that provides the in this case we're dealing with a thriller so the 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 hidden details the creaking floorboards all in a way that feels organic as harlow's walking across the hoop house and going and descending into the basement i i have to provide those from mueller's point of view because he's down there trying to fix the machine that mm-hmm. got, got all gummed up and those details have to they have to fit in there so that the audience, while they're reading it, doesn't know that that's what they're hearing. And then in that tense conversation, it's probably going to be a page mm-hmm. or two long, which for a script is too long. It's way, way too much. And the reason it's going to be too long is because they're going to be, as they play cat and mouse, there's going to have to be lots of those other atmospheric details that I throw in there. I'm going to have to misdirect a little bit. I'm going to have to p- describe some of Mueller's changes of heart, but I have to put that in there in the dialogue as he's talking and masquerade it, maybe some, some one-off lines and Harlow for the same thing. I have to make what she's doing believable. We have to make her stiff at fort first and then flirtations, all those different things. It takes a long time. And as a novelist, as I'm writing this, I'm going to give myself as much fucking time as I want. I am going to, in, in fact, expand that scene to the point where I want it to be bursting. And then later on, I'll go and, and, and cut because it's always easier to cut than add. So from your point of view, you get something like that from a novelist trying to write a scene in a movie. And how do you start shaping it and cutting it and angling it? Right. So, you know, essentially it's the, uh, the game of adaptation from fiction. But, you know, you wrote, you did part of the adaptation. Well, we didn't, we're not adapting this, but what we're talking about is the, the different process of building that scene. And I think one of the fundamental differences is when you're screenwriting, you're counting on someone else to create a lot of the atmosphere that you would naturally be layering, layering in as, as a fiction writer. And so every little sound and every detail, and it's a lot more suggestive because you don't write every little aspect of the set design, you know, you, you give key atmospheric details, geographic details, geography of the scene, not where we are on the planet, but, and, and then you set the reader in that type of space and a set designer is going to, in every little twist and turn of the scene, there's going to be details that are layered in there. A snake slithering down the wall, you know, or water dripping from the ceiling or all these things. And not all of those details are in the script because it would just get way too long. So right. 
a lot of the details are suggestive, whereas they're inexhaustive and rich detail in, in, in fiction or prose. The other thing is dialogue serves a much different function and dialogue is, is kind of essential. <laughs> in a script? Yeah. So again, looking at a scene, I think w- what, what's behind everything that's said because what is said is not the thing. It's never the thing. And if I come across dialogue that is the thing, then I rewrite it. Until, you know, there's a point in many scenes where it's like the cut the bullshit moment and people will talk real, but they they always try to get what they want obliquely. Okay. So let's talk about this specifically. I I have something I'll bring up because I like like having hard copy here. I, I like having something practical. So there is, towards the end, it's on mine. It's page sixty-one. It might be earlier because you've edited edited it down. You have a direction where it says Harlow measures her options. Right? She's trying to figure out at that point whether or not she should leave. But for a script, you know, it's she's measuring her options. You're you're being direct. It's it's for the actor. It's for the director. But as a novelist, I'm going to have to show somebody measuring their options. I'm not going to write in the novel. Harlow measures her options. It's first of all, it's going to be in past tense. And second of all, that's doing in terms of description, what you definitely don't want to do in novel writing. So she's going to play with a button on her shirt because remember, she's trying to flirt with Mueller a little bit. Uh, She's going to glance around the room and like pick something up off the desk and tap it, maybe to annoy him or get to him, twist it around. And then she's going to say the dialogue. Now that might only be two sentences of dialogue, but that's that as you, you've been telling me all year, adds up, you know, to the point where it could turn a 110-page script into a 150-page script, and that's yes. way too long. Yeah. One of the things that I know that I have to do, and I'm thinking now of a, of a short story that I wrote, I think I brought it up in the past couple of co- uh, podcasts, it's called The Catalyst, and it's the main character, it goes into a cave after being saved by this woman, and he's in this, you know, this wasteland, he's got to try to figure out how to get out. And, you know, there are chunks of paragraphs in there. And the chunks of paragraphs are not in there to create chunks of paragraphs. They're not there to create time. And there, there, there is a similarity in, in, in short story writing and novel writing to, to the craft of screenwriting where it all has to matter. And a bit of an aside, that's what I tell my students why I teach them how to write poetry, even though they say they hate it is because you really have to take out right. every word that doesn't matter. Take out the articles. Take out the conjunctions if you don't need it and look for the right word. It's a condensed version of, of needing to do the same thing in your prose. And once you get good at that, you'll get better at your prose. So in that scene, he, so many different things have to go on. And I guess one of the things you can look at it is in terms of, of plotting, character development, and then beauty of the language. And that is a big difference between writing a scene in, in fiction and screenwriting. It's not that screenwriting doesn't have beauty of language. That's not what I mean at all. But this character has, has to go into a cave in a post-apocalyptic nightmare. His goal is to get out alive. He's just been somewhat rescued. And this woman is acting really, really weird. And everything that he says is met with some kind of mm-hmm. deflection or minor answer followed by something else weird. And he's looking around the whole time at this cave and you start to realize, and this is a Groundhog Day story timeline that I've invented here. The first time he's in there, he realizes 
way too late that the walls are made up of skulls and he turns around to a pickaxe in the head. But the first time that you, you do that, you don't want to broadcast, broadcast that to the audience. I wanted to allow them to feel the relief along with this character of being saved from a situation. And yeah, there's this nutty woman here, but it doesn't mean anything. She's just weird because she's been out in the desert for so long. I've probably seen that scene in a post-apocalyptic film before. So have you. Yeah. But it's the little details. It's the setting up the lushness of the cave and the little de- and you bury all those little things until it happens. And then the trick after that, and that's specific to that type of story, is you have to make it seem new again and fun again every time you come and revisit that thing. The main character has to learn how to avoid the death. But that would take three or four pages, I think. And, you know, you're looking at 250 words a page. 500, 750, maybe even a thousand words mm-hmm. in a novel. Mm-hmm. You bring up a couple of, of pertinent things. I'm actually doing a word count. See, so what you bring up, okay. So four pages of a script is it's about, it's under 200 words a page. So about one, 195. It's a little under 200 per page. So you know, in writing, in setting up a scene and you talk about setting up the details and incorporating the beauty of language. And I think that's a really interesting point because that's a primary motivation of the prose writer is sort of the union between the beauty of language and the style of story that you're writing. So Mm -hmm. the beauty of language in a horror story is going to be different than the beauty of language in a character, psychological character, you know, crime and punishment, Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. But, but that is a primary motivation is just finding your song, you know, and it could be a thrashing punk song or it could be, you know, a melodic sonata, but you're, there is a beauty of language associated with prose. And there's a certain language experience that you expect from, you know, a beach read, Dan Brown book, yeah. whatever. With the screen, with screenwriting, the beauty of language is like, a tertiary motivation or a motivation that I tell young writers to dispel with altogether because people try too intensely to have a voice with screenwriting and they do it at the expense of clarity. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm picking up a piece of writing that's either that is in prose form or that's written. Like I can pick up every time I read a script by a writer, I don't know. I'm like, this person is most definitely a fiction writer first because it's just (laughs) fiction. It's just prose chopped up into what looks like a script and the two don't, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, I think it's, it's just a different, it's a different depth of experience You know, that's why so many people, you so often hear that the movie wasn't nearly as good as the book. Because in a book, you just get such a deeper experience of a character's journey. Yeah. And, And so... It is a weird motivation. It's like if you're if you're true if you're truly wanting to honor the depth and richness of story, then write a novel. But if you if you want to use imagery and juxtaposition and and just the raw visceral experience of watching something play out, then then you know you write a film because there are certain indulgences as a creative that you have at your disposal or that you're allowed 
when you're writing fiction that you just, you don't, you don't have that the same latitude when you're, when you're writing a screenplay. So, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. Have you ever seen, maybe written, or, or maybe if you haven't seen it, you read it in a script, a scene that should have come off as flat because it didn't have those rules in place, but that you loved anyways. For example, in the novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay mm-hmm. by Michael Chabon, mm-hmm. he writes a scene in which the main character meets Salvador Dali and, mm-hmm. uh, or Dali, and Dali almost chokes to death on one of his, you know, silly experiences and, and the main character, you know, saves him with his pocket knife. And there is some tension there and some character development, but that the whole scene in general and then where the party is happening is more about the beauty of the language and some of the characters he gets to meet. And you could tell that he was just having a, a great time writing it. Sure. And if you've ever read any Michael Chabon, he he uses elevated diction, complex compound syntax. He he loves playing around with lang- language. Mm-hmm. And so even though I, I I loved the the bit of tension in that scene and the bit of character development in that scene, it was really more, like you said, the depth and the richness and the verdancy of that language. Mm-hmm. Just a joyful experience. Yeah. Yeah. But there, and, and it was a great scene. And I don't think if they ever make that into a movie, are they going to be able to pull it off the way that I felt it when I read it for the first time? Mm-hmm. This should have been a flat scene. It's not doing anything that Robert McKee or any of the other experts told me that I was supposed to do. But fuck's sake. Looking for your next favorite book? Try The Hive. That was very dramatic, I know. What's it about? Funny you should ask. When an alien hive lands in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, Amanda Jett and her daddy are thrust into a nightmare landscape filled with body snatchers, brain-cracking fungi, crypto monsters, melonhead children, mad scientists, and the tentacle-wielding hive itself. The Jets have their own allies to help them, though, including Dr. Huntington, a brilliant inventor with the tools and technology they need to fight back, and the mysterious girl whose powers may or may not be what they require to defeat the invaders. But the hive is changing the climate to suit its needs, and time is running out. You can buy Season 1 of The Hive today for only 99 cents. Just visit silverhammer.studio and click on the Fiction tab. Or you can pick it up at your favorite online retailer, including Amazon Kindle, Apple Books, Nook, Kobo, Kobo Plus, Scribid, Thalia, Bold.de, Tolino, and Angus and Robertson, as well as online libraries like Overdrive, Biblioteca, Baker and Taylor, Hoopla, and Borrowbox. Do as you're told, not as you will. Pick up The Hive today for only 99 cents at silverhammer.studio. That's S-I-L-V-E-R-H-A-M-M-E-R dot studio. Now back to the show. Yeah. I, you know, nothing comes to mind in the, you know, in the, in the foggy catalog of films I've seen and, and scripts that I've read, but, you know, I will say this, when it comes to a film, I have a pretty low tolerance for that. And I probably watch films or experience films a little, a little differently. I don't dissect them while I'm watching them. But I am fine-tuned to what's happening in the story. And I think 
when you look at masterful scene builders like the Coen brothers, they, they, their scenes have that kind of richness and unexpectedness and, you know, joy of experience and depth of character, but they're also integral to the story. So I just, I've read a lot of those sorts of scenes, but it's usually in one of, you know, a good writer's first draft where you look over the story and you look at like each scene is an essential card in a house of cards and in a finished script and a really tight, well-written script, there aren't many cards that you could pull out. And I would dare say there's probably not any cards you could pull out and that house of cards is going to stand. So you mentioned the Coen brothers. Uh, Did you have anything specifically in mind? I mean, because I'm a huge Lebowski fan, that's the first thing that I leap to, but obviously they've done more music movies than that. Well, Lebowski is a great example of the first time I watched it. I felt like I, 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 I hadn't, I was so lost. I was like, what is the through line I'm following? Well, I'm following this noir, really? this noir drama about the rug and, and everything else. But, you know, then I'm flying through a fantasy with, you know, bowling balls and dancing girls. And like, it, it was so <laughs> out in left field that I was like, wh- how, how do all these constituent parts fit together? And it's, uh, you know, it would lose me. And then it'd come back. I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. But then it was in watching it the third and fourth time where it really came together more and more. And it just, and it, it just, you, you experience it. And mm-hmm. I love it. I would watch that movie any day. And I think another one is that is, is kind of tough to follow, but it's full of rich, really funky scenes. This isn't Coen brothers, but is inherent vice is another one that's an adaptation, but it's, it's sprawling and it, it's, you know, there's a lot of, like in Chinatown, the first time you watch it, there's so much going on. There's, it's always noir, all this noir stuff. There's so many names thrown around and so much, so much of it does unfold in dialogue. And a lot of the, a lot there, you know, the, that classic noir exposition, you know, and having to absorb all of that while also following visual cues. Yeah. In those noir stories, it's like how each one of these things fits together. The, the tapestry is a little tougher to follow. So, in those situations, that's, that's yeah. my fault. And I, you know, I have a hard time piecing complex plots together the first time, like, you know, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, I got 40 minutes into it. I'm like, fuck this movie. And I've never gone back, you know, and people talk about, oh, it's brilliant. And I've, and then other people talk about it. it's the most opaque movie I've ever seen. I have no idea. So I know what you mean about Lebowski. I think with Lebowski, what enabled me to get through it and in love it and enjoy it from the start. Uh, well, there were a variety of factors, but mainly it was the comedy. And so I didn't necessarily have to be able to mm-hmm. follow the plot to enjoy what was going on. It was a little bit of the knowledge of Chinatown and this is like, oh, this is their version of it where, you know, you've got this dumbass just constantly getting beat up and thrown around and not really getting anywhere. But I know the details mm-hmm. of where he was supposed to be getting her in there somewhere. But I think that I, th- I like the concept of the beauty of language. And I think what it is, is that the language of a screenwriter is different than the language, obviously, of a prose writer. And the language of a screenwriter mm-hmm. is as much about imagining what you aren't yet seeing, you know. And so 
there is a there, you know, juxtaposition is something that's constantly in play in prose, but it's, you know, it's always in play. You know, you consider that in every single scene, like just what are, what are, what are the images that the viewer is going to be experience, experiencing in this scene and how do they juxtapose, juxtapose with the, the, the tension, you know, or the, of the dialogue or the action or whatever. And like, how do they interplay? And if you think it, there's a movie called Eastern Promises where there's this brutal fight scene that plays out mm. in a shower, in a tiled shower. And it's, yeah. it's just visceral. Like, cause you know, you juxtaposing the, the vulnerability and the nudity with an intensely violent physical brawl. It's just like, it just made it, if if you had that, those same two characters meeting outside a bar, it would have been, you know, almost every other bar fight, you know, fight outside a bar, but you, you know, you put them into a shower and suddenly it changes. And that's part of the language of the screenwriter that, you know, it, you could play on a lot of the same tensions and, and feelings in, in prose, but it just, right. it's different. I like that. I like the way that you, you brought up the idea of juxtaposition there because in, in that scene, especially because once you were talking about it, I was remembering it's like, yeah. man, anything can go at yeah. this point. And I mean, off of the guy without the knife, which creates that conflict and that discomfort. And sure, you could do that in prose, but how much more difficult would it be to adapt that scene into a novel? Hearing the skin slapping on wet tile and all that squeaking and all that stuff there's a certain experience that's more you know that you know it's like the senses of the brain the theater of the mind versus actually hearing and seeing it it's different and so i think you know if you were building the and then tightening that up and in, into that into that description line that does what it's supposed to do yeah absolutely whereas i feel like a, a prose writer might get lost in it and lose that intensity yeah or you know and they might just choose to set up that conflict slightly differently. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I don't know. I lost my train of thought. All right. So I like, I like the idea that the beauty of language and prose, here's a, a bit of a side in the way that's how I shop for books differently. Now we went to, Angie wanted to go to um, Barnes and Noble because she wanted to get some paperbacks for the snowstorm. We had a snowstorm out here. It got about eight inches. I've been off school for two days. It's beautiful. And if this had been 1999, 2008, I would have walked around, enjoyed all of the, the books and looked at magazines and all that stuff. But I, I, I didn't. She went and got her paperbacks. I went and gra- got a strawberry acacia, whatever they <laughs> call that in that. And th- thumbed through my phone for a little bit. And I, I told that to her on the way out. And I was like, it's because I look for samples on Amazon through my reader. Yeah. And I peruse that way. And then I find one that I like and I buy it and I move on and I'll go and load them all up with, with samples. A lot of times I'll find these samples and within the first yeah. paragraph, I'll know I'm not reading this. This is, this is not yeah. my style at all. And sometimes I'll surprise myself. I'll get a book that I'm like, no, I don't care that this is very indie movie-esque in terms of plotting that this is only going to be about the beauty of the language and the characters. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I'm going to read it because I love the way that it's written. And, and so very, I would say very few times I, I'm with you. Do we do that with movies? I'm not saying that those movies don't exist and that there aren't 
fans of that type of thing. But that's not why I experience movies. I experience movies for the scene, the way that scenes are plotted. Yeah. That yeah. And that's an interesting thing. You know, when you think about a writer flexing their love of language in some way, you know, one of the mistakes is flexing your love of, of the language, the mechanical, the mechanics of the English language, the way you would prose in a screenplay, because it's irrelevant at the end of the day, by the time when someone sees, comes out of a theater or, you know, finishes a viewing at home, the language of film is all integrated into a singular experience. And so it's, and if it, there's always like something resonates with you and, and it's different for everybody. Just like you said, that that same sample might, you know, get someone to click buy right away, you know, a different reader on that sample that has you saying, this isn't for me. I mean, I think there's a similar thing about how the language of film comes together. And some films like just resonate more deeply with you, regardless of whether or not you're going to, you know, recommend them to people tomorrow. But like, I remember when I, the first time I saw the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford, oh, I was just, and love that movie. Yeah. I was just, love that movie. I was just like, it just cut right to my bone and other people like, yeah, it's good. It's slow. It's like, yeah, oh my God. You know, so it just, you know, it's, there's a certain thing, you know, when you're, when you're putting a script together, it takes uh, a consciousness that your contribution and what you're doing is really it's, it's a, it's a turnkey for all of these other creative professionals to unleash their understanding of the language of film and to deliver on it. And in that scene has to have that tightness. It has to have what you were just talking about. Yeah. This entire episode, the, the, the character development, the purpose There has to be that the conflict. Yeah. The conflict and the purpose. And it has to be what? 30 seconds, a minute. Well, I mean, it, it, that, that varies. And we did stray off of the scene, but the words and the language and the elements that you use to construct a scene reflect that. But, you know, I, and the, the length of a scene, you know, is a, is a good, is, is a good, it's a, it's a good topic and there's no right answer, but, you know, proportion is important. Like, whatever is happening in the plot mechanics should be, it should be proportionate. Like in other words, if it's just a minor beat and you've got two people chatting in a, chatting in a cafe and it's really just to decide which safe cracker they're going to hire for their heist, you know, it's, and and you have a 95 page script, this better not be a seven page scene. Cause you think about it, it's like, (laughs) But, you know, and that happens it, and, and you talk about reading a delightful scene, but that its function isn't right. Right. You get that in first drafts. It's like, this is a great scene. I love these characters, the dialogue. It's funny, but it's also seven pages. It's, it's you know, 8% of your script. Right. And so that, you know, this scene should probably be, you know, two to three tops. And it sucks because you you have mm. to cut out a bunch of stuff you love, but often you'll find that that's characterization and I can find, oh, I can put that joke into another scene or I can put that whatever. But 
if I'm writing a film and I've got a scene going on for seven pages, I'm going to step back and look at that really carefully and almost always get it down to five. But I would say, you know, for a standard drama or comedy, you know, genre films, I mean, yeah, two or three pages, three, three, you know, three pages, three minutes. That's pretty good. Anything beyond that in your, unless you have, you know, three micro scenes within a scene, like the, to go to a story nobody knows yet, but the Lilith's farm, but the one where all that different stuff is happening at the farm table. Oh, right. You know, I don't know how long that is, probably about three or four pages, but that could stretch out to five or six if you leaned into some of those things because it's actually several things happening at once. And I don't mean to imply that you have endless time with a novel. Obviously, you don't. It, de- it depends on the genre you're writing. You know, fantasy is over 110,000 pages. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, pages, words. Whereas, you know, a horror horror novel is going to be 88 to 95,000. You know, you're going to have you know, middle school stuff or YA stuff at 54 to, to 70. Romance down in the lower word counts. And, but in terms of scene, if we're, if we're going back to that, I mean, it, I also didn't want to say that, you know, that all novel scenes have no purpose. Of course yeah. they do. I, I just meant you have a little bit of freedom there. But I think the other difference that you can do with prose uh, writing scenes is you can, you're allowed to fold a couple of things into a zoomed in moment. Yeah. Whereas screenwriting obviously is the zoomed in moment, but I could be beautiful with language and, and then throw some expository details into that beauty. And then I could have, you know, use that to transition into this, you know, moment, an anecdote, a scene, right? Between yeah. a couple of different peoples and then peoples, people, characters. And then in the middle of that, fold in some more beauty of language and and then have a another part of that scene where they're, the, the whole purpose is to relate some expository information without us knowing that they're doing that and, mm-hmm. and the whole thing on expository details. You have that freedom to do that. And that's where you start getting into the, oh, I like the way this guy writes this. I like the way this girl has constructed the language around these two people talking about whatever it is that they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And you deliver so much story that is the scene and more. And I think that's a great point is that other than the characterization you're showing, you know, this character in this scene is clearly traumatized by something. You're really what you see is what you get with a little bit of extra stuff layered in, in, in with the screen. And that's why, you know, it's why you get into these situations where it's like, oh, I'm going to jump into a flashback. Cause if I was writing prose and I walk into this room and the guy sees, you know, his grandmother's steamer trunk, all these things can flow through his head as he's wondering whether or not he should open it. He's thinking about the last things his grandmother, you know, that they talked about before she died. He's thinking about the first time he saw that steamer trunk and whatever else and the mysteries that it could hold inside. You could build all that in that decision. Whereas, you know, the writer might think, oh, well, I'm going to just flash back right here to the last to the last time he spoke to his grandmother. And then I might flash back. It's like, but there's a very low tolerance for flashbacks in as a, <laughs> as a narrative device in films, you know, right. unless you're doing it, unless it's- Just use the zoom in, right? It's the same thing. Well, y- y- yeah, camera directions right. are just a no-no because you're not the cinematographer. I'm joking, I'm joking. 
No, I meant I meant like you know that that's it's the same thing using a flashlight. Yeah, like, yeah. Right, it's well, here. it's it and it what your what your reps will say or the people reading it, it's like if this is that important detail and it happened years before, then maybe you figure out a way to drop that in before your before your opening scene. Maybe this is a scene that builds up or like you know it's just interesting l- the way you handle linear time you can stir it up a little bit more in prose. I've written stories where flashbacks are a motif. A third of the story takes place in flashback. And that's like, it's essential to how this story works. But in general, flashbacks are a sign of laziness in 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 screenwriting because it's like, you're just trying to shoehorn in an extra bit of information you think I need for this scene right here. Because if this was an essential yeah. scene for us to see, you would have showed it to us 15 minutes ago, or you would have showed it, you know, or you would have built it in differently, you know? That is really, really cool because I feel like it again goes to the parody of, of screenwriting versus I could put a flashback into a, into a scene merely once again, to have beauty of language, to illustrate a relationship, to not do something that you might absolutely need in a screen, in a screenplay. It's, it could be a one page flashback about this kid's love for his grandmother that because I felt like writing it, I I wanted to, to illustrate it that way. And it was again, beautifully written, awesome dialogue, but there's no, tension there's no you know, there's just some cr- creative character development you know but there's no purpose for that scene to drive the plot forward in any way but you absolutely what you're saying is again you absolutely need that in that in the screenwriting otherwise what's the point let's let's figure out a way to restructure yeah yeah and i think in you know we're very much our discussion reflects being writers of the early 21st century you know and <laughs> you know, Dickens and, you know, the, the prose of the, the 19th century and early 20th century or 17th century, it all changes in the sensibilities about how you can use things. And I say that because I think in the last five years, 10 years, you see a lot more creative work with jumping around linearly and using flashbacks and flash forwards. So, you know, the, the yeah. ideas around that very well could be changing. But that said, it's one of the, it goes back to like, learn the rules before you break the rules. It's like, even now, if I want to write a flashback, I'm like, yeah, but that means I should probably have introduced that scene earlier on. And sometimes it's as disruptive as, you know, my first act is really the first part of my second act or something, you know, you Mm -hmm. find like there's just, I didn't start early enough in this story. So in that way, scenes can also affect the the outcome of the structure because of what you're supposed to be doing earlier on to set things up. I'm thinking of the morning show. Angie just watched that on, on Apple Plus and it's a good show. I liked it. It was, it was really good. But there are a couple of decisions that characters made that seem to be too immediate. Mm-hmm. You know, one second they're saying this and the next is this. It's like, oh, I, I see now because the next episode they wanted this to happen and it's what you're talking about. That scene that character's decision should have been forecast right. three episodes ago. Right. It had nothing to do with flashbacks or anything like that. It just felt very abrupt. And I went, oh, they're just trying, they're, they're, it feels like they're rushing to the end and maybe they should have had a little bit more time for script development on this. Yeah. Y- your characters can do the most insane, out of the 
blue things, but it's, it has to be plausible for the character and the world that you've set up. And so if, you know, if you have a character and you're in a straight story and somewhere in the early second act, they suddenly pull a magic wand out of their purse and wave it through the air and this bird turns into a ham sandwich, you're like, wait a second, this isn't a story about magic. This isn't plausible. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a, an extreme example, but you, you establish what is feasible to expect from your character and your story early on in the story. And so that when you get to that scene that you wanted to, occur, yeah, you know, like, Oh, th- I already knew this character had a little bit of magic in her, you know? Well, you've led the audience towards that decision, whatever decision it is that that character or capability um, or, yeah. you know, yeah. In the case of the morning show, the, yeah, the, the decisions they're making. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and so, but it, it's your job as the writer scene by scene to make that, plausible when it comes to the the point where it needs to right. happen otherwise it is it is just at random it, it it doesn't feel like you said plausible it doesn't feel like you feel cheated as the viewer at that case at that point or the reader yeah it's the it's the god in the machine it, and so that's how important it is in those scenes to make sure that you're not doing first draft stuff in the seventh draft. yeah that's right i mean it is you know the plausibility question is always in the back of my mind. Like, is this plausible? And sometimes I'm crippled by it because a lot of implausible shit winds up in movies and people don't care. Their belief, disbelief is, or the suspension of disbelief. But, you know, someone said in a book I read or a talk I heard that it just has to be plausible in the world you've created. So if I get to a place in a story and this isn't just with magic powers or superpowers, things like that. It's in the decisions. It's the decisions like in the, in the morning show, it's like, is this a plausible decision for this person to decide that they're leaving? I didn't see the show. So I'm just saying, is it plausible that they're just going to walk out of the marriage and the family home and never come back? It's like, if you haven't established this world through your early scenes as one or the character as one who, you know, it's the world of an unhappy person, or it's a world of a person who makes wildly impulsive decisions. It's like, if you've set up a different world and then your person, I mean, you can use that to affect obviously to really knock someone on their heels, but, but that that's sophisticated storytelling for the most part, it it just has to be plausible to the world you've created. I think even with episodic, you know, really great episodic writing, every scene is essential and the great, the, you know, the really great episodic writing. And like, if you go back and watch the wire, you know, straight through there's scenes that happen in one season that is a seed planted that they don't, you don't get payoff for until like the third season. And it's like, it's, (laughs) it's intentional, you know? And it's like, that's it. And I, I, I run into that a lot when I'm reading first drafts or coaching people, it's like they'll write a scene early on. That's a really good scene and it sets up a certain expectation and it, there's never any payoff. And so it never comes back around by the end. And so that's like an open-ended thing. And it's like, 
that's a good scene. And it even works building from the scenes that come before it, but you're establishing an expectation that I'm going to learn why the teacher, you know, went into the teacher's lounge and, you know, did X, Y, and Z, and then went back to class. There's some weird right. twist of behavior that I'm totally into and was totally digging <laughs> and it never comes up again. I know ne- you never explain what that quirk was or what, and you know, it's like, that's got to go, you know, because it's as, as delightful as it is. If there's no payoff, then you're going to leave your audience feeling a little bit shortchanged. And then, and then we go back to, I would say the closest thing we have with episodic script writing is the short story for prose writers. And you've got 7,000 words max. Really, it's more like five to 6,000 mm-hmm. words to tell a story. But you can write a story like John Cheever's The Swimmer, where those details are necessary. And, and I don't know if you, you know that one, but you know, as, as he gets closer and closer to his home, a storm is kicking up. And I, I won't ruin the ending, but all of the details that you have at the beginning of the storm are juxtaposed to what you see at the mm-hmm. end. Uh, and it's the beauty and economy of the language. And so he has a, a series of mini scenes with a whole bunch of different people. Or you could be talking about a story like the one that I just read to my students, uh, A Mystery of Heroism, where there are, and again, this is 19th century literature, so there's a little bit of a change there. But you have these whole page and a half, two pages of a battle sequence just showing the chaos of a battle. It's still amazingly written, and I love reading it. I love reading it aloud to the students. You do have zoomed-in moments and purposes for these particular things, but I would say that if somebody were to try to write a four-page battle scene into a movie, <laughs> that that's not really going to pan out. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if you only can have four lines prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. How do you want to wrap this up? I had some tools. I had two tools. Oh, mine were physical. When I'm working on a story, especially first draft, you know, I usually work in multiple different places. I'll have text files where I'm capturing notes just on the go or when I wake up and things like that. And then I'll use Milan note. There's a tool. Okay. So that's a tool. Milan note is a website, milannote.com. Just in short, I started using it when I got really sick of having a million note cards just in boxes and strewn over. And it's like, (laughs) I'll do a note carding session, which is the old school method of working, developing your plot scene by scene where every scene is a different note card. And you, you work out your scene structure similar to an outline, but it's physical, it's tangible. So you can lay them out, sit on the floor, lay them out on the carpet or on the tabletop and see how your first act is playing out via these note cards. And then you can rearrange them and you're not having to cut and paste and fix logic problems. So you can really work out. So you do that for years and it's like, you have a session. It's like, I don't want to fucking hold on to these cards. And there's more cards. I'm accumulating. It's like, maybe I'll save them. And then you <laughs> find cards that you saved from six months ago. It's like, I forgot I had these or something good there. Or why am I even keeping these? Anyway, there's been other little like Caban or Caban boards or whatever, like Trello, but that doesn't really emulate the free form ability that note cards use. So Milan note came out a few years ago and it 
and it's exactly that. It's just, and it's advanced quite a lot. But in the early days, it was just as freeform as creating a note card for a scene, putting it down on the uh, backdrop of the web app that they use. And it's just like putting it down. It's not fixed in columns or a grid. You can move it around. You could arrange it in a circle or a square or columns, connect it with lines, mm-hmm. whatever you want to do. It's great for story development and for beating out a story. Story scenes. Yeah, story and scenes. So, so that's a really handy scene tool. And- the other one, so after using that, I, I'm still a very an analog person. I still write in longhand with ink and paper a lot. A couple years ago, I started, and this was after like I had my Milan note game. There's times when I just don't want to turn on a device where I want to sit down with paper and pen. And so I got this dedicated notebook of grid paper, which I never, I usually only, I don't, I don't like grid paper notebooks, but and it's made by Nemo Sign, or uh, that's the name of it, M-N-E-M-O-S-Y-N-E. And you can find them on amazon.com. And it's this, this great top spiral uh, notebook. And it just became my dedicated for working out scenes. Like it was my, it was my analog Milan note. Nice. And I used that. I beat it out many stories in this notebook. And then I went online to get a new one because I filled it up. And I go on there and I see the picture. I'm like, yep, that's the NemoSign top spiral grid notebook. And I purchase it and it arrived. And my first one was just a normal eight and a half by 11 size. I buy the new one and it arrives and it's half that size. But looking at the photograph, you can't tell. <laughs> and I missed that it was a miniature one. And so I have this miniature one. I just filled that up. Well, I went back because it's time for a Nemo sign number three. And what I discovered is they have a mammoth one that's like almost the size of the sketch pads that art students Ooh. run around with. And I it just... You're sampling from each of the sizes. Yes. And so I went back and I realized they have this jumbo one, which is easily a third again as big as a normal notebook. Top spiral, grid, and you open it up and there's this massive page of graph paper. And it's like a charting and plotting and note-taking extravaganza. So I really, it's... So it's kind of like you you dated a girl, mm -hmm. broke up with her, and then immediately dated her little sister. And then when you broke up with her, you went to the, you, you skipped over the mother. You went to the grandmother. Well, it's more like I had a real doll and <laughs> th- that's the digital version. And I just loved it so much that I thought, you know what? I'm going to try the real, the real thing, the, the, yeah. the non-virtual. An actual girl. Yes. And then I moved to a little person for just a physical variant. Possibly. It could just be a short person or someone who's real skinny. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, it's um, on the cover here. It says it's the 167 Nemo sign. If you search around, it's kind of hard to find even on the AMAZON. Well, we, can, we can put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Bigger is better with notebooks. All right. All right, well, we, we we failed in keeping this short. That's okay. It worked out okay. And I, I don't feel depleted. So maybe the trick is to eat a bowl of pad thai before our sessions. It gives me just the right energy. And have two cookies. I feel like I fill you up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
thank you everybody for tuning in this week. Don't forget to check out season one of The Hive for only 99 cents. And visit the Silverhammer Studios website at silverhammer.studio. That's S-I-L-V-E-R-H-A-M-M-E-R.studio. See you next week for episode four of Storybones Dialogue. Dialogue.